0: Dear listeners,
1: hello and welcome to our Beyond Markets podcast. My name is Sharon M. Wilcox from Julius Baer Content Management in Zurich, and I am your host today. In this edition, we welcome special guest, Dr. Damien Ng, who is an Executive Director and Research Analyst for Julius Baer's Next Generation Research Department. As a Singaporean who has been living abroad for nearly 15 years, Damien is a fervent believer in the importance of education for all. In his case, he completed a bachelor's degree at the National University of Singapore before finishing his master's degree at the University of Zurich in Switzerland, and subsequently completing a PhD at Durham University in the UK. This makes him the perfect person to talk to in this podcast about the topic of education. Education, is a topic that is of concern to all of us and society at large. Whether it be personal education, parents worrying about their children's education, the global realities relating to unequal access to educational resources, or China's recent educational reforms. Damien, you recently published a 10-page report on global education with the subtitle, Can It Still Fix Inequality? a timely report with an interesting subtitle. So, what do you think? Is education still capable of addressing inequalities in the 21st century? Does education still pay off?
2: First of all, thank you very much, Sharon, for the kind introduction. To answer your question, yes, education still pays off. But we've got to be patient about the outcome. For example, children who go to school have better opportunities in the future because education provides them with a chance to break the cycle of poverty. After all, educated individuals are more likely to marry later, earn higher incomes, and enjoy better health. School attendance can also serve as crucial protection for children and youth from other alternatives such as child labour and other terrible forms of abuse and exploitation. Even for adults with the most basic education, the ability to read, to write, and to count will not only increase the likelihood of employment, but it will also reduce the sense of isolation from society. So therefore, education remains an ever-critical component of sustainable personal development in the 21st century, regardless of gender, ethnic, or socioeconomic background.
1: Gender disparity is a worrying issue when it comes to accessing educational resources. After all, girls and women were historically more likely to be excluded from formal education than boys and men. The outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic also aggravated unequal educational opportunities for the poorer segments of the society. What do you think about this, Damien? You know, Sharon, and Girls in general are attending schools longer than
2: ever before, and that's really good news. But the drop-out rates for primary school age girls continue to remain high in some regions in the world, such as Sub-Saharan Africa, South, and West Asia. In the case of Sub-Saharan Africa, for example, early marriages and teenage pregnancies are some of the major factors that prevent roughly 55 to 0 million girls from the region, from going to school. Against this backdrop, it is indeed true that persistent gender inequality remains a major concern amongst policymakers all over the world. Nevertheless, I hasten to add that it is poverty that poses the greatest hurdle to education, not gender disparity. In fact, Statistics have shown that the socioeconomic status of children's parents, along with the divide between rural and urban dwellers, constitute the most important factor determining a child's drop up probability or even likelihood of going to school at all. The extent of poverty's impact on education has been made even more obvious by the COVID-19 pandemic because the world's poorest countries were more unlikely during the health crisis to be able to provide adequate support for remote learners who came from financially disadvantaged families. While the wealthier countries around the world could more easily transition from classroom to home-based learning, the lower-income nations faced greater difficulty in delivering online courses to their citizens because the path was fraught with more challenges. After all, Online learning relies on the availability and accessibility of technology like computers and internet facilities and even electricity, luxuries that may be taken for granted by richer families or countries. Therefore, a global crisis like the pandemic can widen the rift in educational inequality.
1: So, Damien, would you say that education has become a luxury since the lower-income countries are more likely to be denied access to it? Or do you think education remains a necessity?
2: You've raised a good point, Sharon, and a general level of education remains out of which for many people standing from low-income countries. But when it comes to further education, even students from the developed world, especially those in countries that have adopted the Anglo-Saxon model of fee structure, are faced with barriers. For example, the states and the UK remain some of the world's most expensive countries when it comes to tertiary education. Whether the students are domestic or international, multi-tuition debt has indeed prompted questions about the increasing commoditization of tertiary education as a luxury good as well as the long-term sustainability of the trend for the sector. In the case of the states, for example, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York estimates that the average student loan debt reached a record high of around U.S. dollars in the year 2020, almost one point six trillion U.S. dollars on a collective basis in the states, far exceeding the accumulated credit card debt for the country. Given that one in 10 Americans has defaulted on a student loan and many students experience financial difficulty in financing their studies, society may indeed have to ask itself the following questions. Uh, Has education become an expensive entry ticket to the job market available only for those who can afford it? Or should higher education be a fundamental social right that is free of charge because it benefits society? Or should students focus simply more on gaining skills while on-the-job training?
1: In your opinion, Damien, why are these expensive Anglo-Saxon universities still the top destinations of choice for many students around the world? And why is it that you personally chose to pursue your postgraduate studies abroad in the UK and Switzerland rather than in Singapore?
2: Well, regarding your question, Sharon, and the many reasons for opting to study abroad, like in the UK and Switzerland, in addition to experiencing a different culture when studying abroad, another major reason for the attractiveness of Western universities, particularly the Anglo-Saxon ones, among foreign students can be attributed to their better rankings compared to their peers from other parts of the world. Because after all, students and parents have long been preoccupied with university rankings due to the perceived impact of a university's reputation on one's future career. The dominance of Anglo-Saxon universities in the major global university rankings is clearly palpable. given the overwhelming presence of American and British universities such as Oxford, Harvard, Cambridge, Stanford, and MIT, among the world's 10 best universities.
1: What are some of the most popular subjects that international students are pursuing?
2: As far as the fields of study are
1: concerned, more than half of the foreign students in the
2: States were enrolled in the STEM subjects, that is, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics disciplines, followed by, say, uh, business and management, arts, humanities, social sciences, and others. However, there are signs that other locations, such as China and Singapore, are also becoming increasingly attractive destinations for overseas students. In the case of China, data compiled by the UNESCO Institute for Statistics show that there were over 500,000 inbound foreign students pursuing the studies in the country in the year 2019, and this figure has more than doubled since the year 2010.
1: What are the top nationalities of overseas students signing up for universities in the West?
2: According to the latest 2020 Student and Exchange Lister Program report issued by US Immigration and Customs Enforcement, China and India accounted for nearly half of all foreign students in the states during the academic year 2019-2020. Other nationalities include South Korean, Saudi Arabian, Canadian, and Vietnamese. China and India are also the major countries of origin for overseas students studying in the UK.
1: For sure, the COVID-19 pandemic must have negatively affected the number of foreign students seeking to pursue their studies abroad.
2: You're absolutely right, Sharon. And the outbreak of the coronavirus has resulted in fewer student arrivals from abroad. Now, this is because colleges and universities across the world, in Western and non-Western countries, shifted classes from on-campus to online due to COVID-19. 19 lockdown measures. This move has naturally deterred many foreign students from pursuing higher education overseas due to a compromised learning experience and dwindling part-time job opportunities that would have allowed the less well-off students to pay off exorbitant tuition fees and living expenses. There was an overall decline of roughly 70 percent in new international student enrollments in 2020 across US colleges and universities compared to the previous year. Nevertheless, it is to be highlighted that the number of Chinese and Indian students who form the main bulk of the international student cohort in the States has already been declining since the year 2018. Now, the reasons for this include tightening student visa rules, the lingering tense US-China bilateral relations, as well as continually improving local universities back home.
1: Damien, do you think Chinese and Indian universities will ever compete with elite American and British universities and be able to make it onto the top 10 list of the world's best universities, thus giving Chinese and Indian students an alternative to studying abroad? Uh, Sure, Sharon, and because undoubtedly Asian universities are rising
2: in the global rankings. And this development is taking place at the same time as the states and other popular undergraduate and graduate destinations like Australia and the UK are increasingly adopting a toughened stance on foreign student visas. Against this backdrop, more and more Chinese and Indians are opting to study back home. Now, to illustrate the growing reputation of Chinese universities, for example, in the year 2010, there were only two universities from mainland China in the world's top 100 higher education establishments. Today, this number has risen to six, with Peking University and Tsinghua University, both like 16, entering the world's top 20 for the first time in the latest world university rankings. Now, the growing dominance of Chinese vasties in the world's international rankings can be evidenced by the increasing number of researches and research output that the country has been producing in recent years, along with rising institutional income earned via collaboration with non-academic industries. Indian universities, on the other hand, have also been improving their research productivity and citation impact, although they are still lagging behind their overseas peers. India has four universities among the world's top 500 higher learning institutions with the Indian Institute of Science leading the pack. Despite the significant improvement from both countries, the top universities from China and India are still lagging behind the global elite when it comes to their reputation for teaching and research, as well as the share of international students and international co-authorship. So for this reason, Sharon N., so China and India would do well to focus on this gap in the coming years before expecting to win the equivalent of a d'or as one of the world's best-learning institutions.
1: Since we have talked a great deal about Chinese students and China's improving universities, let's shift our focus to the country's recent educational reforms. The Chinese authorities have kept investors on the edge of their seats due to the recent raft of new regulations targeting the private industry in the country. What has happened here?
2: As part of China's common prosperity drive to narrow social income inequalities, Chinese private education companies are not only required to convert to non-profit entities, but core curriculum tutoring aimed at passing the standardized college entrance examination or called gaokao in Mandarin during the weekends and vacations has also been banned. The prohibition also affects Teachers based abroad, including young people and stay-at-home mothers from Anglo-Saxon countries who are willing to offer English-language classes to Chinese students by online tutoring platforms in the evenings and at weekends. The clampdown has had the effect of cooling the booming private tutoring market, which had been blossoming due to the hope of Chinese parents of giving their children a better chance of succeeding in the country's highly competitive examination-oriented school system. Now, the sweeping education reforms also aim to protect sleep-deprived students overladen with homework in addition to providing couples with financial incentives to have more children, thereby arresting a rapidly declining birth rate. Moreover, the new policy coincides with the emergence of the lying flat, or tongping in Mandarin, this lying flat movement among a growing number of Chinese youths Who are contented with more attainable achievements. However, this development runs counter to the government's design to foster a hardworking and productive populace that can help contribute to the country's long-term goal of becoming an industrialized superpower. The root of the problem is the disenchantment with the daily grind of life among the less affluent segment of the Chinese population, who are caught in
1: an ever-fiercer red race with diminishing returns. Given the embattled share prices, is it now time for investors to consider Chinese education stocks? Good
2: question, Sharon. And although it may sound attractive to buy Chinese education stocks at depressed share prices following panic selling on the equity market, investors are advised not to catch a falling knife. After all, following the regulatory overhaul the previous business model of the country's $120 billion for-profit education industry no longer exists because the companies need to restructure and reinvent themselves. So against this backdrop, along with potentially more follow-up policies and recent society developments, the outlook for the Chinese education market appears
1: dim. Thank you for your insights on this very interesting topic, Damien. So, what should our listeners take away with them on the theme of global education from an investment perspective?
2: Investment into an individual's education is a long-term, lifelong undertaking. In fact, Sharon N, a a Chinese philosopher from the 8th century before the Common Era, once said, it takes 10 years for a tree to grow, but it takes 100 years for talents to be nurtured. Fostering the next generation of talents is a slow and laborious process, and yet vital for the long-term sustainable development of a country and an increasingly knowledge-based society. So from an investment perspective, we maintain a cautious view on the global education as it is a sector that is unlikely to get off the ground given regulatory headwinds, as well as the largely non-profit nature of the compulsory education sector necessary for nations to eliminate social and wealth inequalities in the midst. So in the case of China, after-school-teaching stocks have been gathering immense investor attention due to a stellar performance in recent years. However, the harsher-than-expected Chinese regulatory overhaul has rendered that investment space unattractive. So the recent policy changes are also not helped by the potential risk of more regulations pertaining to different sectors of Chinese education, including higher education and online education, from local authorities over the coming months. Now, turning to the global companies involved in the digitalization of education, the outlook for the education technology sector appears promising over the longer term due to rising innovation and the greater incorporation of technology in the education sector. Nonetheless, the dramatic fallout of the once-loved Chinese education stocks along with the gradual return of school children and tertiary level students to schools and higher education facilities following the lifting of lockdown restrictions, may result in short-term volatility for education technology, as well as other segments underpinning the global education theme, spanning childcare and K-12 schooling, adult education and global publishing companies. So, therefore, it is advisable that investors remain cautious in the space until we see greater clarity.
1: Thank you for your interesting conversation today, Damien.
2: It is my pleasure, too. Thank you very much, Sharon. Anne.
0: You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Bear. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Bear, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research.